Alrighty, gang, welcome back to Adventure Fit Radio. Radio. Here is part two of the Geraint Lewis show. Right. Now, this is on Skype. We just did this. Again, super mind blowing stuff. I actually fucking love this guy. <laughs> I, I want to like, give him a hug. Yeah. I want to give him a really nice hug. I want him to be my uncle. I, I, exactly right. I'm going to ask him if he can be my uncle. Yeah. Geraint Kerr. <laughs> um, I'll just change my name. Just change, yeah, just change yeah, my name. I'll be Kerr Lewis. Ger- or Geraint Kerr. Or I'll be. <laughs> I'll be Durant. I'll be Durant. Bill Kerr. Durant. 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 <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's, a, he's an absolute champion. And he's so, you can tell in the passion of his voice, like you heard from uh, the last episode, that he's just, he, he really truly loves what he does, which is amazing. Um, we spoke a lot today. We actually spoke a little bit about aliens, which was cool. Um, we spoke a lot about some of the stuff, some of the physics involved with uh, Interstellar and, um, and the very interesting topic of discussion of comets hitting the Earth and, and matter hitting the Earth. Space safety. Space safety, which is actually really important because we are not that safe. It's really scary. We're not that safe at all right now. Ah. Um, guys, we are sponsored by audible.com. Uh, They're a great little uh, audio book thing you can jump on when you don't feel like reading a book. Just get it all through. Get all the content, the information through. They're an audiobook thing, are they? They're an audiobook <laughs> thing, yeah. Obviously, yeah, I don't want to be too professional here. <laughs> um, so if you jump on to audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF radio, you can sign up and you can get a one free credit. So you can get a first book free, basically. I just had a look at my wish list. I have basically the most like losery information. So I've got Elon Musk. I've got, I've got uh, Elon Musk. Yep, I've got Origins by Neil deGrasse Tyson. What is it? Origins. I think I said Origins, origins there. Oh, origins he said Origins. Origins. <laughs> so Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famous <laughs> astrophysicist, wrote a book about fruit. And that's uh, <laughs> no, Origins. Uh, great Lewis, guys, you'll find out, actually is writing one called A Fortunate Universe coming out later this year. Hopefully that's going to be on Audible that we can all download. Uh, what I'm else you got on there? I wanted to read The Iceman by Anthony Bruno. And then some the Graham Iceman, Hancock. Uh, the Iceman by Philip Car, uh, Philip Carlo or Carso, mm. is probably my favourite book. Oh, really? That's a different version of the Iceman that's oh, on there. Okay. The Iceman from Philip Carlo is as good of a book as I've ever read. Is it the original of this one? R- no, nah, it's the, it's a Richard Kuklinski story. I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. It's oh, okay, cool. Richard, the Iceman. For anyone that uh, is interested, is uh, is about a hitman who had um, probably, I think they had three, uh, 250, 300 more murders over a 45-year mm. period. He had a loving family, two beautiful children, mm. respected member of the community, and he was just a brutal murderer for yeah. all the five families in New York. And it tells a story about uh, about him, so get on Audible and you'll, uh, you'll hear it all. Yeah, and I also want to read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. So, guys, jump on Audible. Awesome. We are also sponsored by Bill, who are we also sponsored by? Adventure Fit Travel. Adventure Fit Travel. Now, isn't Mount Everest coming up? Um, by the time this show is released, there'll be a couple of weeks left to book in. Okay. Okay. So, yep. If you want to come over to Everest with us, guys, get in quick. They'll, uh, time is running out. It'll be an awesome trip again. Um, we're also going to the Philippines in November, and we have Kokoda coming up in um, on Anzac Day, which will be uh, April next year as well. Mm. And um, by the time this is released, there'll actually be another couple of sneaky trips that'll be up oh, yeah. and running, but I'm not going to say them because Schnickety. sometimes I don't get things done <laughs> on the time frame that I plan to do them. Schnickety, schnickety. <laughs> All righty, guys, without further ado, here is part two of Durant Lewish. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one. 
Great. Um, let's take a little bit more of a of a different route from um, from the Big Bang and from how the universe was created. I would like to hear your thoughts on s- space safety. So, what I mean by that is, uh, why is the government not spending more money trying to look at the risks associated with us getting hit by an asteroid, um, some little little fragment out mm. of the Oort cloud? Like, why? Can you elaborate on your thoughts on on that? Um, well, well. Firstly, we know that there's a lot of stuff out there which uh, is potentially dangerous for the Earth. There's there's plenty of asteroids, and we're hit every day by rocks of varying size. But we know that there are some, some rocks which are very large, and we have comets that come in from the Oort cloud uh, at regular periods. I think the reason that it's not high on the radar is that. Um, big collisions are quite infrequent. Um, there was something that happened in the early 1900s. There was a giant explosion over Russia mm. uh, called the Tunguska event. Yep. If that if that happened over a major city today, it would be absolutely devastating. But you know, because these things occur once every century or few centuries, then you know it, it doesn't stay on the radar. But the big problem is, is that when they do occur, if we are hit by something big then the results are pretty disastrous. And, of course, the dinosaurs, um, they never the rocks either. Uh, and look what happened to them. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So uh, how, how much has technology improved since the Tunguska event? I mean, surely we'd be able to foresee this sort of stuff. Well, Chelyabinsk, we couldn't. Hey. Chelyabinsk, the, the, the most recent one, where the, the yes. asteroid came through the, the, the yeah. atmosphere and then nobody even knew about it. So why, why, why is that? Great. Oh. Okay, so there's a, there's a couple of reasons. So, so technology has advanced a huge amount. We now have lots of telescopes around the world, and we have um, telescopes which are basically robotic, and they can survey the sky, and they basically look for anything that moves. So we do have some of these programs which are ongoing. It's just that they haven't been going long enough to detect all of the stuff which is potentially dangerous. The most dangerous ones, though, are the ones that come straight towards us because... They don't move on the sky. Mm. So if you've got a robotic telescope looking for things that move and something is heading straight for you and so it just remains as a dot, mm. you don't know about it until the last minute. Wow. So That's the, but the, scary. Scary to yeah, think about. <laughs> but the, the, the scarier thing is that even, oh, no. if, <laughs> even if we find something, there is nothing we can do about it. Oh, really? We have, we have no technology set up to basically... Uh, prevent any rock heading towards us from hitting us. So we can't just call call Bruce Willis and get the team get him back out there. Armageddon, well, Armageddon two is that is that realistically not an option? It is. It is not an option. The only spacecraft that we have that carry people into space at the moment that both the the Russians and the Chinese have very similar rockets. 
they can get up to low Earth orbit, up to essentially where the, um, the space station is. We have, we have rockets that can get out into, um, you know, into the deeper parts of the solar system, but what are you going to put on them? We don't have any technology that can stop an asteroid, deflect an asteroid, or destroy an asteroid. So, so that sucks. So, so basically we're trying to, we need to, if we were to ever find an asteroid that's coming directly towards us, that we can't really see, we would have weeks or months to build the most the most powerful rocket you've ever seen with a nuclear bomb gun on it. <laughs> so, so, but part of the problem is, is, look, we love nuclear weapons, of course, they're very powerful, but it takes an awful lot of energy to deflect a, a rock, you know, the size of a big asteroid. It could be, you know, kilometers across. Yeah. And a nuclear weapon, the best you could probably do is crack a big object like that. Really? Jeez. Even, even if you break it into pieces. It's still coming for us, isn't it? It's coming for you. So instead of being hit by a big bullet, you're hit by a shotgun blast, yeah. which still dumps all that energy into the atmosphere and into the earth. Mm, mm. Yeah. It is one of the big issues that um, humankind has to deal with is we know these rocks hit. As you said, the, over Russia, uh, there was the, the event only a couple of years ago. That was, that was a relatively small rock. When the big guys hit, they, it can be quite disastrous. It, it, I said the, even the Tunguska event, that was the size of a very large nuclear weapon exploding. But luckily, it was over a very empty part of Russia. So, so Tunguska, so Tunguska is, a, is a city leveler, basically. Uh, yes, absolutely. All right. so, so what would, in your, in, your, in your mind, so say we get hit by something that's bigger than a city leveler, something that's like, something that's going to cover half of North America, because doesn't that mean that like, all of the all of the telecommunications is going to be set down. All the lights going to be going to be left. And in all the cities around the world, we only we're only set up to really survive for is it three or four days without before food has to come in. And then it, it, why why it just it, it begs it begs the question why more isn't being done about yeah, it. You know? yeah. More more money is being spent on. Well, so so let, let's just go back to to the the impact. Um, it, it's not only the the place where it hits is going to be the issue, right? Because anything that um, is big enough uh, is going to throw lots of material up into the atmosphere, and you're basically going to going to end up with the equivalent of, of what's called a nuclear winter. It was one of the worries about after a nuclear war. You throw up so much smoke and debris in the atmosphere, you block out sunlight. Yeah. And the temperature on the surface of the Earth will then plummet. Mm. A big enough event is going to do something like that, so we'd have to worry about that. So would that be, would that be say, the next size that's above um, Tunguska that, that hits, say it hits North America, would that have the potential to, say it's like a five-time bigger event than Tunguska, would that have the potential to put so much cloud into the air to cause another ice age over North America? Um, who are, I'm not sure about the exact size. It probably would be bigger, have to be bigger than five times, maybe a hundred times bigger. Mm. Um, that would that that has the possibility of bringing in, um, I say, one of these nuclear winter kind of effects. They, now they don't last as long as an ice age because all that eventually gets rained out of the atmosphere and the sun comes out again. Right. But that, think about how long um, humankind, how many years we would last if we didn't have any crops each year. Exactly. Oh, for yeah. Sure. Which yeah. which really really sucks because it just shot goes to show how much we do rely on the modern way of living, especially yeah. when we didn't always need to do that. Hey, uh, great! I wanted to ask you um, slightly different tangent um, about this sort of stuff. 
just in relation to how um, how how good it is that we have Jupiter's gravitational pull in reference to all of these meteors coming in, and how much that sort of saves these potential um, cataclysmic events. Can you shed some, shed some light to, to the listeners on on what yep. Jupiter does? Right. So Jupiter, of course, is the biggest planet in the solar system, and it's much larger than the Earth. You could fit hundreds of Earths inside Jupiter, um, and so. Because it's much larger, it's got a very strong gravitational pull. And so having that planet in the solar system means that it looks like a big target to all these rocks. So rocks which are moving around through the solar system feel Jupiter's pull, and many of them have been pulled into Jupiter and have crashed into Jupiter rather than the Earth. So having Jupiter in the solar system has proved to be some sort of um, almost a vacuum cleaner for cleaning up a lot of the debris that would be potentially dangerous for the Earth. And it's still doing it today. It was mm. only back in um, 1990 that uh, comet Schumacher-Levy 9 flew past Jupiter. It got ripped apart. And then it went around the sun and then crashed into Jupiter itself. Wow. So that was another comet that had been removed from the solar system due to Jupiter's strong pull. Wow. So the... The speed at which a meteor or, or, or whatever must be traveling to get through Jupiter's pull must be ridiculous for, for it to be any real threat to Earth. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, so it's a couple of things. It's, it's going to be the speed and the, the direction that these things are coming in from because mm. um, Jupiter sits, you know, and all, all the planets orbit together basically in a flat plane. So the direction that things come in has an effect as well. But all these rocks out there, they're already moving at around 20 to 30 kilometers per second. <laughs> so, so that's the typical speed of things in the solar system, which is why these rocks, when they hit the Earth, are so dangerous. They're carrying so much kinetic energy mm. just due to their immense motion um, that, you know, they, they basically cross the, from space to the surface in a, a, a fraction of a second, more or less, right? And, um, and they deposit a huge amount of energy. So... Uh, yeah, these things are already moving fast. So what about um, just in relation to the Oort cloud? So where does the Oort cloud sit? Because that's not a, a, a meteor that's coming from outer space that's got to get through Jupiter and its gravitational pull. That's, that's basically in our, uh, in our orbit, right? It, it's a group of... Can, no. you explain, can you explain the Oort no. cloud to, to, to me, basically, and our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, the Oort cloud actually isn't in our orbit. Right. So, the Oort cloud is in the very distant parts of the solar system. Gotcha. So it's like the edge of the solar system, okay? Okay. And out there, there are basically the, the leftovers from when the planets formed. So the sun formed from a, a cloud of gas, and in that gas, bits stuck together and eventually formed the planets. And those bits that um, didn't end up in planets are still out there in the very outer regions of the solar system. And what happens is, is that there's billions of them out there of all sizes from, you know, size of a snowball up to uh, hundreds of kilometers across. And if an, another star passes by the sun and it doesn't have to be very close, it basically shakes the Oort cloud slightly. Mm -hmm. And then these um, leftover bits of forming planets, they fall into the solar system. So they, they stop orbiting way out and then they fall in towards the sun. And these give us these comets that come from very deep space. And they're the dangerous ones because um, if you have a comet in the inner solar system, you can watch it orbit and go round and round and round. So you know where it's going to be and when it's going to be there. Yep. 
But if a comet is has fallen from the old cloud, you just don't know when it's going to arrive because it's never been into the inner solar system. Right. So we we have comets that appear and they they fly past the sun and then they disappear again and we never see them again. So they've come in from the old cloud and then they've basically left the solar system. So right. they're the dangerous ones as well. Right. God. Okay. Alrighty. Hey. Uh, let's move on. Let's get straight into wormholes. Um. Now, my understanding, uh, G-Man, is that wormholes are a perfect mix of a black hole and a white hole. Uh, can you shed some light on, on what a wormhole is and, um, and uh, if, it, if it exists? I'm not, I'm, I don't even know too much about this. <laughs> okay. okay, so um, we have to go back 100 years, back to Einstein working on gravity. So he, cool. he basically gave us our modern vision of gravity, which is called general relativity. Yes. And in that picture, space and time are kind of rubbery, okay? So if you bend space-time, that's how you create gravity is by having a bend in space and time. And one of the ideas that people realize is that if you bend space and time enough that you can actually connect one piece of space to another piece of space Mm. through a tunnel. And that tunnel is known as a wormhole. Okay. And... Um, there are different kinds of wormholes. There's the one that you sort of described there, which is a, a connection of a black hole and a white hole, i.e. you fall into one and you pop out the other. Mm. But there are other structures people have thought about where you basically think of it more of a, of a tunnel that you can travel in both directions. Mm. So, so we, have, we have the mathematics for describing a wormhole but we don't know if any wormholes actually exist in the universe. Right. So, so they're a theoretical idea. And if in the, in the future, if we survive all these rocks falling in, yeah, um, that's right. we can harness um, a special kind of energy. It's, it's known as negative energy. Um, if we could harness that, we could actually bend space and time ourselves and build a wormhole between two points in space. Oh, it'd just be we, amazing. We, which would mean that, you know, if you had a wormhole entrance here on Earth and the other one on Mars, that you could just step through and you would be on Mars. And how, how quickly would you travel between the two points? Uh, instantaneously. I mean, it's as long as the tunnel. So, <laughs> so it, it, you, can, you can make the tunnel as long or as short as you want. The more you bend space and time, the shorter the distance along the tunnel has to be. Yes, yes. God, it's just – no wonder you became an astrophysicist, mate. It's just the <laughs> coolest thing in the world, isn't it? It is oh. good stuff, yeah. So what – so, uh, you know, we spoke a lot about black holes um, um, when we were up in Sydney and, um, you know, how, how cool and, and how bloody dangerous those things are. What, what about white holes? Not many people know about that sort of stuff. Well, um, so, so white holes, again, are – um, we have the mathematics. So when you do work through the mathematics of black holes, one of the things that comes out is that you can also have this thing called a white hole, which ejects matter rather than sucking matter in like a black hole. The, the reason why there's less, um, less interest at some level is that we don't seem to see any white holes in the universe. So we see evidence of black holes. We see things that appear to be sucking matter in, but we don't really see places where matter is coming out in the way that you'd expect a white hole to work. Mm. So again, it's thought that maybe they're just a bit of a theoretical curiosity. They're allowed by the equations, but we just haven't had any mechanism in the universe to create any. Yeah. That doesn't mean that in the future that we won't have um, 
again, said if we can bend space and time the right way, that we could create our own um, white holes. But at the moment, it's theoretical curiosity. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. So black holes, um, you touched on it before, the only reason we have evidence, well, I mean, I guess we know that they're there, but the only reason we kind of know that they're there is because of the, the, uh, the things that occur around them. So you can see matter and, and things being it's- pulled into it, but you don't actually see any evidence for things being pushed around a single point in space. Is that right for white holes? That's effectively, yeah. We don't see a place where there's loads of matter gushing out. I mean, some people have made some suggestions, but um, so there are very energetic places in the universe where you do create jets of matter, um, but there are other ways of making those jets that just involve um, electric fields and magnetic fields. You don't need to invoke a white hole for those places. Yeah. People are still, still trying to find the signatures. Okay. And I guess it's harder as well because the whole universe is expanding anyway, so it'd be hard to find a little expansion within an expansion. <laughs> that's, that's right. But people look. That's the key thing is that uh, um, that's what astronomers do. They look for what they understand. And they also try and find the things they don't So because those are always the interesting things. Yes, yes. Now, uh, Bill and I both love the movie Interstellar. I can't remember <laughs> when we touched on this before, but um, Bill wanted to uh, go over the, the actual physics of, of, the, of the movie itself. Can we talk about um, the biggest one that people love um, is those, those huge waves. Um, have you seen the movie? Correct. I have seen the movie, yeah. Cool. I, I, I quite liked it. I thought it was a bit drawn out at the end. Yeah, but, yep. but yeah. But, yeah, it was a good movie. Were you really excited? Like, did you have your popcorn and your Coke <laughs> ready before you were going in? And <laughs> um, I can't remember. <laughs> I watch the movie so infrequently these days. I did go to the cinema to see Interstellar because it was on the big screen. Of course, yeah, yeah. So, so Jimmy, I want to ask, ask about the actual uh, logistics of Deep intergalactic space travel. Uh-huh. So for us, we can we can travel around our solar system, but realistically, how far into the future? What do we need to do to be able to actually get to? And I touched on this with um, Seth Shostak in one of our other um, interviews from from the SETI Institute about what the difficulties and where they lie in actually getting into um, the Andromeda galaxy. Um, the what's the other next next closest galaxy? Uh, I don't know. After what's the yeah. next closest one after Andromeda? Well, uh, the, there's the Triangulum Galaxy, which is next door to Andromeda. Yep, but that's we right. Have some, we have quite a few dwarf galaxies, little galaxies scattered in between as well. That's right. So, so obviously, if we were we were able to create wormholes, and that fixes fixes all of our problems. But like intergalactic travel to that extent, what do we actually have to do to make that a reality? Say the movie Interstellar was um, was uh, was possible. Is that is that actually close to being physically possible? The the theory of the, what went on in Interstellar, or is it just too far off? There's too many light years away. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on? Okay, so um, at some level, when it comes to space travel, right, we are still cavemen. Yeah. Right. What we are doing is that we are we're using chemical rockets. To get into space, they require a huge amount of fuel because they're actually quite inefficient. Mm. Um, and that becomes a very limiting factor because, uh, as you mentioned, the distances are immense, right? The, for light to get from here to the nearest star, which is Alpha Centauri, it takes four years for light traveling at 300,000 kilometers per second. Mm. Yep. Rockets can get up to a few tens or possibly a hundred kilometers per second if you really try which means that if you want to get to the next star let alone the next galaxy you're talking thousands and thousands of years yep 
Okay, mm. we just so ro- standard rockets just cannot get to the speeds required to you know make even getting to the nearest star possible. So we just we need a revolution in technology. We need new ways of propelling spacecraft. Right, and, and there are people working on it, but of course it's similar to the. Um, uh, the, the searching for asteroids, it's a small number of people who often struggle to get funding. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> oh. Maybe we could sponsor it. Maybe yeah. we could do some sort of Adventure Radio fundraiser. Let's do it. Yeah, me, maybe me, we'll, get a Kickstarter. we'll get a Kickstarter going for the Adventure <laughs> Radio listeners. Oh. Makes me uh, so annoyed. <laughs> it does make me annoyed yeah. too. Well, look, there's, there's people who um, said that the next step in space is for somebody to realise that asteroids have lots of um, rare earth metals on them, right? So the metals you need for your phone to work. And we're running out of those on earth. Well, but- it's funny that you say that, uh, G-Man, because we, I, I, I got a, um, a guy called Bill Stone. Um, uh-huh. He's lined up to be on the podcast in a month or so. And his, I, I got onto him through a TED Talk, and his TED Talk was about um, we should be mooning the mine. We should be mooning these asteroids to set up basically petrol stations in space for all our Did rocketry. Did you say mooning the mine? Mooning the mine. Did I say mooning the mine? <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I meant. He's uh, pulling his pants down, showing his bumps uh, to, the, to all the miners. But, um, yeah, so the, you think that's the next step? How will that work then? Well, what will, the, the next step will be when somebody realizes they can make money out of it. Yeah, yeah good point. Somebody realizes they make money out of it, then they put the effort in to do it, right? So um, we, need, we need somebody to start work out there and, and say, look, you know, I mean, there's, there's masses of rare metals and everything scattered through the solar system. It's just hard work to get them. And hard and, work to get them back, right? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to be very dangerous, right? Because mm. it's not a very, um, uh, very uh, safe environment out there. No. But at some point, we are going to run out of stuff on Earth. And I mean, we already know that we are running short of gases like helium, etc. We're going to have to get off the surface at some point. And once we do that, then hopefully that will be the steps of going further and further. Right. Yeah. yeah. But we, we definitely need uh, changes in technology. We need new kinds of um, spacecraft propulsion so that what, are high, highly efficient. So what types of new, new technologies are they working on? I mean... Uh, I've heard of um, I've of heard a big of... sail, the big solar sail that that um, that uh, creates drive from the from the sun. Um, yes, that that that's something that I've I've read about. Not that I know too much about it. But what are the leading technologies that people are actually putting time and effort into, albeit small funding and small amounts of time they can put in? What what are they working on? Well, the, the solar sail one is an interesting one because the, the the people are um, talking about an idea of having a sail and a relatively small sail and actually projecting a laser at it to get it to the nearest star. And I think, I think with doing that, having a very light sail and putting a laser on it for, for 50 years or 30 years will get us across that distance because the thing will just keep accelerating and it won't have to carry its own fuel. Right. But, that, that's the thing. Sorry to cut you off there, Garant, but um, that's the thing about rocket fuel, isn't it? That there's this huge... Uh, um, not a paradox, but almost annoyance with it, that the, the faster, because we, we want to make it go faster, obviously the more rocket fuel it needs, but then the more rocket fuel it needs, the more mass, we have. The, uh, the more mass it has, so the slower Absolutely. it's going to go. Absolutely. So there are ideas where you either have highly, highly, highly efficient engines, which basically would use combined matter with antimatter, 
and uh, that produces radiation which you shoot at the back and that makes you go faster. Mm. Or you actually pick up fuel as you go in that you could, I mean, there's lots of very diffuse gas spread through space, lots of hydrogen gas out there. And if you have a big enough scoop, then you can basically scoop up the fuel and then use that to, to power your rocket. Huh. That's but cool. That's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm actually sitting here. I'm looking across to my shelf because I just had a student finish work with me and he brought back a book called The Starflight Handbook, which is now 20 years old, this book is, and I've had it for, it for a long time. And these ideas are still being worked on and people are plodding their way through them. Yeah. Um, but again, as I said, we're going to really going to need a, a step serious investment before we can really get out there yeah right. with um with the like say we do have a solar sail is um what's the chances that we can actually put a human on such a such a device and is the next step for us as in exploration into other galaxies is it just robotics and like can we bring can we send photo and video back from other galaxies like how does is that is that our best bet to to see what's out there or well, as I said, other galaxies are probably a long way down the line, but other stars, yes, we can send messages back. Um, I actually think that robots are going to be the way for a long time because as soon as you want to do something with a person, then there are a whole range of issues that you have to worry about, i.e. Mm. keeping them alive, uh, which with a robot is, is much, um, you know, you can package up a lot of stuff in, a, in an electronics box and, and send it out there, and um, it'll be much cheaper than trying to send a person. So, so I think robots will be the way ahead, and then people will possibly follow down the line when our technology gets good enough. Makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Hey, uh, just wanted to quickly touch back on it. Um, I know I mentioned it before, but just with Interstellar, I was um, going to ask you about the uh, the huge waves on that uh, on that planet, and. Um, I wanted to sort of touch on um, time dilation um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then obviously general relativity from that. But can you sort of in layman's terms explain um, why they were, you know, they went through so many Earth years on that planet and, um, and also to why the waves were so big? <laughs> okay, so... Why don't you pick one question? Yeah. <laughs> no, I do that all the time. Yeah, I, I ask six up. questions in one, can one you, sentence. Uh, tell me who you are. <laughs> tell me who you're into. <laughs> Yeah, I know that um, there's there sort of two different things there, but great. Uh, but yeah, pick one. We'll, uh, we'll go into it. <laughs> Start with time dilation. Let's do it. Uh, so, so again, we go back a hundred years and we uh, look at Einstein's picture of gravity and this notion that space and time are sort of rubbery things. Okay, you can bend them, you can stretch them, you can squeeze them. What he found from his mathematics is that 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 means that the rate at which a clock ticks depends upon how strong the gravitational field is that that clock is sitting in. So if if I take, if you imagine I was in deep space and I have two clocks and I keep one in space and I put the other on the surface of the earth and leave it there and bring it back up and compare the two clocks back out in space, the one that would have been on the Earth would have ticked more slowly because it was in a stronger gravitational field. Ah, uh, yep. Okay? So this was the, the notion in Interstellar is that um, the planet they were on was in the strong gravitational pull of this black hole. Yep. And the gravitational pull was so strong that the relative clock rate, it was ticking so, so slowly for the yeah. people on the planet that when they went back out and compared the clocks, 
a lot more time had passed outside than inside. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So now, the stronger the gravitational pull, the slower time your moves time around is. It. That's right. Now, you might think, oh, well, you know, that's all to do with interstellar and black holes, but your mobile phone has to take account of this when it uses GPS. Yeah. Because the clocks on the satellites in the GPS system are ticking at a different rate to the clock on the surface of the Earth. Mm. So if you want the clocks to stay in sync and know where you are uh, on the surface of the Earth, you better take into account this difference in clock rates. Now, I wanted to um, – I use this analogy um, – when I try to explain it, because I'm obviously a professor of astrophysics, um, <laughs> and I, uh, am I right in saying this? If I was to get two twins and I put one twin at the top of the Great Pyramid of Giza, so something with um, you know quite a, quite a big mass relative to us, and he, he stayed there for his whole life, and then I put the other twin and I put him near like a little book. Let's just say we could do that. He was just holding yeah. a book. Um, all else relative, would the... Would the twin standing on the top of Giza um, after 50 years or so be a fraction of, of time uh, younger than the other one? Yes. Yes. Like a, like right. A, yes. Like tiny, tiny, tiny amount. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. These things only become really noticeable if, you, um, if you're in, near a massive object like a black hole yep. or if you're trying to do something very sensitive, i.e. your GPS measurements where you really worry about – um, the difference in clock rates, but yes, there would be um, tiny difference in their age. Cool, and also too, if you're traveling closer to the speed of light, your clock is moving um, at a slightly less time frequency than someone on that's, Earth. That's right. So that's cool. that's um, uh, it's known as the twin paradox, and that if you send a twin out into space and they come back, uh, the one that remained on Earth would be much older than the twin that sped off at high speed and then came back. Yes, that's I mean, actually um, that's actually an argument that I've had so many times in my gym and around <laughs> around around the place is because there's a Russian cosmonaut who who holds the world record for longest uh, longest amount of time travelled into the future. Am I right? Uh, yeah. So he is the guy, and um, he was on Mir, etc. I think it was, and it was yeah. like 600 days in space. Oh. So do, just to confirm, just to, just to confirm, <laughs> just to. Uh, <laughs> Validate my <laughs> thoughts again. Just so time travel into the future has happened. Well, you're traveling into the future right now. Uh, one uh, second. Don't get philosophical on us, G-Man. <laughs> so I, you know I can edit this out, G-Man. You know, <laughs> get what you say. You got to agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, effectively. I mean, time travel into the future. If people's clock rates are ticking differently, well, one person will have spent more time. Um, getting to a particular point than other people. Right? So basically, but if that if that cosmonaut, sorry to cut you off, if that cosmonaut is on Earth, so everyone's to- clock is ticking at the same at the same time, then he goes into space, and um, our clocks tick faster, and his clocks tick slower in space. Then when he returns, effectively, he's gone into the future by a split, 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 split second. Absolutely. Mm. So yes. yeah, he's on. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> Continue but, on. <laughs> as I said, I mean, you you can you could play the same game if you were near a black hole. You could come exactly. down and hover near a black hole and come back out again, and you will be in the future. Much mm. harder, much harder to play that game. The closer you get to the black hole, the more into the future you go. So you know, as we saw in Interstellar, they there was decades, but it could be hundreds of years, or thousands of years, or millions of years into the future. Right. I guess the only annoying thing with that is that you know you've got a, a Hollywood idea of going into the future, but your your, what we're saying here, it's 
going into the future relative to someone else. And it's, it's kind of shitty because well, obviously... Well, yourself, because well, when you left, well, when you started that travel, you're at point A and then you're going to point, you're coming back at point C. Yeah, no, I know. But it's not a thing of like, oh yeah, I went to the future and I saw what the world was like a thousand years from now. You know what I mean? Well, if you I mean, went you, fast enough for long enough, That was a poor example. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, it's not going to the future and... It's not. I'm not it's talking not cool. about. Yeah, it's not cool. It's shit. It's back to the future. I'm not. It's, it's not back shit. to the future. It's shit. It's not shit. Your job. But you know what I'm. You know what I'm saying, G man. Get around me, mate. Get around me. I need this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, if they'd stayed on the planet for longer, then when they got off, maybe a thousand years would have passed on Earth, and they would have looked very, very different, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Hey, let's talk about uh, aliens. Are <laughs> we alone? Are we alone? Yes. That, that, that's uh, that's an easy one to answer because nobody knows, right? Because um, it, it's a complicated question because at some level we we still haven't figured out how life started on Earth. There's there's various ideas how you know the first chemical uh, processes uh, give rise to you know basically creatures you know and then. Uh, human beings mm. and we don't really know if the details of that could be replicated through the universe so we'd have life similar to ours or if there are other processes that would give rise to life mm. um, my, my own thoughts are that life is probably common in the universe but most of it is similar to pond scum rather than people mm. right so you know the, the fact is that earth spent an, an awfully long time with just having bacteria on the surface mm. And then more complicated life appeared. And I think that in the universe, most life will be that sort of bacterial, pond scummy life. Well, so it's okay. impossible. What do you think about the thoughts that um, maybe the universe has already had intelligent life and now that's become extinct? Yeah, so there's, there's lots, of, lots of discussion about this um, in that uh, the universe is old enough that they could have had complex life sometime in the past and it's gone extinct. If that is the case, then it should be a lesson to us, right? Mm. That, uh, you know, even because we're here, we feel, you know, we're alive, that it's not guaranteed that we will be here uh, into the distant future. Um, but again, people don't really know. There are lots of ideas that there, there could have been life out there uh, and it's gone extinct, or there is life out there and it doesn't want to reveal itself to us. There's this sort of zoo hypothesis that really we're, we're being studied like some sort of creatures in a zoo. Um, or that we haven't reached the technological level to become a you know a citizen of the of the galaxy. So there's lots and lots of um, suggestions. What we are lacking in is any strong evidence, right? So people are looking for signals for from intelligent life in the universe. And as you said, you went to the SETI Institute. Yeah. Mm. And of course, the SETI Institute doesn't receive government funding, right? It's privately funded. Yeah. So that's another area where research funding is hard to come by. For so, sure. And the, the thing that, that Seth was uh, discussing when we had the SETI podcast was the fact that even if a civilization is far advanced enough to be able to send out signals that we can pick up, we've only for the last 20, 30 years been able to, or however long, been able to really, really um, put the feelers out there to pick up these signals. And then the other thing is there's only a certain window of, of um, time until all civilizations are probably going to become extinct. So you've got a little window. You've got, mm. you've got look, because think of how much time there's been life on Earth. And mm-hmm. up until just now, we're not sending, up until relatively a blink of an eye ago, we're not sending out any signals. You wouldn't think that the dinosaurs were sending out any, any radio waves. So 
is that the biggest problem with actually finding if life is on uh, out there in the universe more than yeah. life just on Earth? Because we can't actually have no way of really finding it. The, the, all of those kind of things combine in that, um, as you said, we, we don't know how long a, a civilization lasts for that can, can transmit signals. Um, those signals get weaker as the distances get larger. We've only really started scanning this guy. So it all compounds to the fact that the fact we haven't seen anything yet doesn't mean they're not there. There's still an awful lot more searching we have to do. Hey, Gorant, you just said something that uh, really interested me. You said signals get weaker as the distances get larger. Mm-hmm. Do radio waves travel at the speed of light? Yes. yes. So wouldn't that always be a consistent pace? So the speed is the same, but the signal spreads out. If you imagine you've got a, um, a source that emits radio waves, as those radio waves go out, they spread out over a larger and larger area. And so the strength, so the, oh. the strength goes out. It's the same way as, you know, you take a light bulb and you hold it next to your eye and it's really bright, but you hold it across uh, an oval from you and it looks a lot fainter. Yes larger. Ah. It's exactly the same with radio waves. Touche. Touche. Yeah, that's um Bill and I cuz we're kind of losery. We uh, <laughs> we we were having this uh this chat today this morning actually. Losery. Um and um, that's slightly offensive to you because you dedicated <laughs> yeah, yeah, your whole life yeah, on this. Exactly. That's what I was just <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Um, no, no. I uh, I love it. I love what you do. <laughs> um we're having this chat about um you know, when when we started, it was the, the early 1940s that we uh sent off the first radio wave signal, I believe. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were having this chat about, you know, God, it's been, what, 70 or so years and, you know, no one sort of uh, contacted us. Why is that? You know, it's, you know, all this sort of thing. We, we were sort of thinking, yeah, I mean, would, would radio waves for at a super advanced civilization be their form of communication? I mean, there's every possibility that uh, they've developed some higher form of communication and they wouldn't be, even be able to read radio waves and the analogy I made was uh, you know some sort of distant planet like banging a rock and uh, hoping for the best do you, can you shed some light on that? Yeah well so actually the, the first signals that were strong enough to be really sent off into space were from the 1936 Olympics oh wow and so the first messages that have gone out there probably got Adolf Hitler handed oh. out gold medals oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Exactly. Right. Look, radio waves are good because they can travel and they don't interact much with the stuff around them. So if you send out light, there's lots of stuff that light can get absorbed by. Mm. So radio waves cut through an awful lot of the stuff in the in the universe. Um, you're right, though, that even if you receive radio waves, how you would decipher them, right? I mean, we, people have come up with smart methods of how you encode messages into radio waves, etc., that your your radio or your television can interpret. But if an alien receives that, then, you know, what are they going to do with it? Mm. And then you're completely right as well that they may have moved on to a completely different set of communication. If they've got wormholes, they might just open a wormhole and hand a letter through, right? Yeah. 100% there's, there's different ways of communication, yeah. I, I, would, I would imagine. Like you yeah. think of the butterfly effect, you think of everything that's happened in humanity and mankind and everything that we see today. If a thousand years ago somebody said used a rather than B, then everything would be totally different right yeah, now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I believe. So yep. I think it's folly to to even think and assume that everything works the way that we work. But this yeah. is another thing that Seth had said. He said, Seth said, um, Seth said that he, he believes that um, that whenever we do come in contact with radio waves from a distant planet or, 
or um, another solar system, whatever. It's going to be artificial intelligence, he said, because, or most likely because we've gotten to the point now where only 1936, like he said, was uh, the first time we could send out radio waves. And then in maybe another 50 years, we could have artificial intelligence is the highest intelligence on the planet. Then um, that might be running the show. This is a, obviously a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, but a train of thought. Um, but, that goes, but that goes to say that everything works the way that it works here. It was such a funny... He was great uh, to talk yeah. to, Seth, but it's very close-minded. I think humans are very close-minded to think that everything revolves, everything works, everything's built up the same way that we've built yeah, it up. Definitely, I, I, I very much agree that um, in reality, scientists have to think of the things that they haven't thought of. That's the idea is that you, you have to say, well, what, what else could happen? Yep. I think one of the other mistakes humans have is that we always assume that what we've got now is the peak of everything yeah right and it, even in my lifetime i've seen things change a lot and i'm trying to imagine instead of decades what's going to happen over centuries mm. and then millennia that it could be very very different and as you said it, it, maybe it'll be ai in some sort of biological jelly that we've invented rather than it being ai on a computer as we imagine mm, for sure it could be, it could be something that Nobody has thought of it. I hope it is. I would hope to hate to think that all we're going to do is just make our phones better than they are today. Yeah. I, I would want some really different technology to appear. Well, I think, I mean, I think yeah. that there's going to be evolution. I think in thousands and thousands and thousands of years, if humans are still a species, I think there's nothing to say, and this is me, a, a guy that's got no science background, <laughs> but I think that there's nothing to say that we couldn't be speaking um, using um, telekinesis oh, to speak yeah. to each other because put it this way, Years and uh, years, um, thousands and thousands, hundred thousands of years ago, we evolved from something that didn't have eyes. So yep. how are we to know what lo- what looking at things was like? How are we to use that sense? We we evolved from something that didn't have a nose. How are we to know that smelling things smelled of stuff? Mm. Y- you know, I don't understand why. Yeah, this is a whole other tangent. I don't even that, know what that tangent's really interesting. The the the, the the thing you just said, Bilbo, about um, not having eyes is amazing. And it was just the, the bacteria closer to the surface of the water that was more sensitive to light and the, obviously more heated, heated up it got, it died. So the bacteria figured out that by going swimming down further, closer away from the sun, was able to survive. Then they were able to, to be sensitive to light and then that progressed into a pupil and, and things like that. You're spot on. I, imagine how we are going to evolve let alone the technology we're going to create in millions of years. It's going to be insane. What are your th- thoughts on all of that, G-Man? Um, well, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, the, the key thing, though, is, um, is if you're going to transmit information from A to B, you need some method of transmitting it, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, we could do – it's bizarre. You could do te- um, telekinesis at some level. It, it just imagine that we evolved a light on our forehead that flashed – and mm-hmm. then you have somebody across the room who uses their eyes to see that flash. That's effectively what telekinesis is. Yep. Yeah. And we don't, we, we, we don't think of it that way, but that's what we're doing. We're transmitting information from one point to another. So you just need a method of having a transmitter attached to your head and a receiver on somebody else's head and something to go between them, and you've got telekinesis. Mm. Well, what about a telekinesis or instead of having something on your head that goes to somebody else's eyes, how about something in your hand that goes to somebody else's hand across the world to tell them your thoughts? Like We're already yeah. basically in a state of telekinesis by using Facebook Messenger on our iPhone. Absolutely. And we, we forget 
We forget how easy it is for us to transmit messages to the other side of the world. Mm. Exactly. It's, it's just it's something. Really, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yep. I mean, totally. This technology we use now, which we send jokes. I send jokes to my brother in the UK, right? I mean, it's, it was unthinkable even 40, 50 years ago. It was magic. Well, yeah. What, what we're doing now, I'm speaking to you live right now in Melbourne and you're in Sydney. Yes. It's insane. It is it totally is. insane. Hey, uh, what, what jokes were you sending? I <laughs> <laughs> uh, best keep those between myself and my brother. <laughs> fair, oh, this, fair. Is a, this is an R-rated podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I think um, why don't we, should we start, uh, did we get six from six gone? We didn't, do we ask you six from no, we six? Didn't. No, we didn't, did we? we didn't. Hey, I wanted to ask you one more thing, uh, Grant, before we get six from six moving on. Um, we've spoken a lot about um, the universe and, and stuff that you know we all sort of love. I'd love to know more about you yourself. Um, anything you're working on um, the next 10 years for Geraint Lewis? Okay, so but what am I working on? That's a good question. I'm actually teaching at the moment, so I've got to teach electromagnetism this afternoon. Um, Research-wise, uh, am, I'm looking at the Andromeda galaxy. Nice. And uh, what, what we've found is that around Andromeda, we found basically the debris from smaller galaxies that have gotten too close and have been ripped apart. So I'm working on measuring how much debris is out there and what that means for the evolution of the Andromeda galaxy because that galaxy grows by eating smaller galaxies. Really? Yeah. We discussed this in the first Oh, we did too. Mate. Yeah, that's right. I <laughs> sorry, forgot sorry, about that. Man, he has a terrible memory. I do have a terrible memory. The yeah. sitting next to me. And so, <laughs> Steve. Uh... <laughs> the, the other thing that I'm working on at the moment is I'm looking at what's known as non-standard cosmological models. Mm. So, so this basically means trying to understand how dark matter and dark energy could potentially interact and what that means for the universe. So it, it's it's a it's a very big topic and we're just trying to sort of carve a niche in there at the moment by looking at the way the universe has evolved with non-standard cosmological models. Right. Wow. That sounds, um, that sounds really, really complex. Yeah, yeah. It sounds, <laughs> sounds above, above our pay grade. Hey, so, yeah. so um, G-Man, we didn't, get, uh, we didn't get to finish off uh, on the first show with, um, with Six from Six, so now obviously like, we've gotten you back on. We want to finish it the way we normally do and that is three questions from myself, three questions from Tommy. They're okay. reasonably rapid fire. Um, are you ready for them? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> that's a, that's well, a no. You, you, <laughs> have, to, you have to be. That's a no. That's a no. <laughs> but, um, okay, so my questions are travel related. Are you a well-traveled man? Yes. Good. This will be perfect then. So, Do we need more than that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not one of the questions. <laughs> um, no, I, I, look, I, I travel. I travel a lot for work, and so I've been to uh, lots of countries for work-related stuff, and, um, and and I enjoy traveling quite a bit. Okay, cool. So, first question then is, uh, is what's your favorite travel destination on the planet? Can be big, small, little country, uh, little towns, uh, country, continent, anywhere. Uh, I'm going to be rather parochial and just say that I really enjoy going back to Wales, cool. uh, which is where I grew up. I grew up there and I somehow missed the fact that the countryside was beautiful and it has loads of castles and things. Mm -hmm. And now when I go back there, I'm completely stunned by how lovely it is. Mm. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, So next question is the dream destination for you on your bucket list. Same thing. Can be small, big, large continent, other planet, galaxy. (laughs) (laughs) If if my my bucket list is to keep traveling, I haven't, I, I don't have... 
I'll say one place that I want to go to I haven't been to yet is Vietnam. That's on the list. My wife and I have spoken about it quite a lot. Um, when I explained it to the kids when they were younger, we were thinking about going to Vietnam. They told their friends we were going to Afghanistan. Uh, so we had to correct them with regards <laughs> to that. Yep. Um, but, but yeah, so I wanted to, wanted to do Southeast Asia. I haven't, I've only been to Singapore and Southeast Asia. All right, cool. Sounds, sounds good. So how many countries have you been to? Do you know? Or? Oh, um, uh, no, lots. Cool, that's good. That's that's in, what we like to hear. In the many tens, at least. Oh, yeah. cool. That's yeah. cool. All right, and last uh, last question. If you had, um, did, did I change my last question in the last show? Uh, potentially. Uh, was it three books? I changed it three books. Oh, you did it. No, three things on a on an island. No, that's a normal question. Oh yeah, that's a normal question. All right. <laughs> All right. So the last question, the last question is, um, if you are on a desert island and you have three things to keep you sane. What are those things? You've got food and water and com- companionship and so forth, but three things to keep you sane, what are they? Uh, three things to keep me sane. Am I allowed a laptop? Absolutely you are. Okay, so the, the, the things that keep me sane at the moment are, well, I'd say, I'd say three things, but they're essentially done on the laptop. Writing. I do a lot of writing, and so I enjoy writing. I, I've got a book coming out uh, in September, actually, Ooh. and I will continue writing. What's it awesome. on? It's on, it's called A Fortunate Universe, and oh. it's about the fact that the, uh, the conditions of physics in the universe seem to be tuned for the appearance of complex life. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, and, and if, if the universe had been born slightly different, it would probably be dead and sterile. So it's about the mystery of why the, there's life in the universe at all. Oh, that's awesome. awesome. Sounds so, good. Um, I also enjoy doing ray tracing. Um, which is basically um, making uh, photorealistic images. Right. Um, and so I've got a piece of software I use that I, I just uh, play around with more than, than anything. Huh, interesting. Um, and the other thing, uh, am I allowed a big bookshelf? Because I, I, there's a lot you, you can of, have a Kindle. I can have a Kindle. Oh, with well. a, a solar Kindle. Okay, <laughs> solar Kindle. I'm a big fan of um, classic science fiction books, H.G. Wells and... You know the the uh, 1800s and 90, early 1900s mm. science fiction. Yep. Um, so I'd happily read read those books. Awesome, sensational Good stuff. Um, uh, let's flip it over. Let's uh, let's move on to my three from three, my friend. Um, did you have a role model growing up? Biggest role model uh, as a kid, or or maybe one now? I've got a hunch of who I think it may be, but uh, I won't tell you until you you say your answer. <laughs> Role model, that's a tricky one. Um, I'm, I don't really remember. One thing I did learn when I was uh, quite young is that I share a birthday with Einstein. Oh, wow. Uh, so I knew about Einstein when I was quite young. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, don't think I had a, a role model I can really identify. Mm, mm. Um, I think I wanted to be Doctor Who when I was a kid. Oh, but, yeah. yeah but, uh, do you still watch yeah. Doctor Who now? Uh, yeah, I do. Good. My, my, my youngest son still watches it. My yep. eldest one has outgrown it, but my uh, youngest one still watches it. I'm the Sorry. same. My, I've got, so I've got four kids. Um, my, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have kids. <laughs> hey, I, I thought you were going to say Carl Sagan. You said, no, yeah, look, I knew of Carl Sagan, um, and I did see uh, the Cosmos show when it was shown on TV, but I think I was just at the wrong age. Mm. I was a little bit too young when it came out. And I read the book then when I got to university. So I didn't have him as a role model as growing up. Sure. I, I wasn't much of a science person when I was growing up, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I remember you saying what that when we, when we um, spoke last. 
Um, I, 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 I don't know. I sort of fell into science <laughs> at some level, and uh, I thought I was going to end up working in the coal mine, which is where my father was working. Mm. But luckily, they all closed down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, uh, luckily for all the people that lost their jobs and all <laughs> yeah. the people that went bankrupt in that. <laughs> <My dad. laughs> luckily, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, second question. Um, what do you, maybe something um, uh, a little bit different to astrophysics, what do you like to do um, when you've got some downtime, apart from uh, study and spend time with your family? Uh, I used to run a lot, but my knees are getting a bit knackered, and so I, I actually cycle a lot now. Oh, no. That's right. I like to do, I like to, this is going to sound not that good. I like to cycle while listening to podcasts. Adventure oh. Radio. Uh, actually, it's, I'm trying to understand the world of economics, so I listen to Ooh. economics oh. podcasts. All right, for well, economics? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah definitely Freakonomics. <laughs> Freakonomics and also some, of the, the, some of the cool ones from the UK, there's Wake Up to Money and that kind of thing. So when mm-hmm. I live in Sydney, I'm at the top of Lane Cove National Park and I can get down into the bush and so I go cycling down there. Mm. Um, when, it's, when it's dry and I can go between many of the suburbs. So that's what I like to do mm. um, if I'm not, not actually working. There's a, there's a great podcast adventure oh, <laughs> something I out there. I think somebody mentioned it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I, yeah. I mentioned it before. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned it before. Well, great, do you know uh, radio I, or something? I think I, know, I think I know the one you mean. I like to see if I've got that on my podcast list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure, I'm sure you will. You, you'll know. You, you will, of course. You'll know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, and, uh, and last one, my friend. If there were three people you could invite to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be and why? And your family is more than welcome to join as well. Oh, my goodness. I, I, sorry, I, I, do, you, do you know Alan Partridge? I do know Alan Partridge. So, is he a comedian? <laughs> He's a comedian. Yeah. And he, and he does a fake radio show. And he was asked this question about who he would invite to dinner. All right. And his response was, Jesus... <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> Dennis Thatcher, who's Margaret Thatcher's husband, really? and then it was the Thatcher ch- children. So Who would I have? Uh, I would like to. I would like to have met Einstein, mm. um, H.G. Wells, and uh, Fred Hoyle. Fred who Hoyle. Was, who was Fred Hoyle? He was a cosmologist in Britain in the uh, 1950s and 60s. He's the one that worked out how stars burn and make heavier elements. Wow. And he he's also famous for being the person who invented the term Big Bang. Oh, okay. Right. Yep. He, he invented as a disparaging remark because he didn't actually believe in the... Oh, that's, that's right. right. I remember I've, that I remember that guy, yeah. yeah. I actually have met him because he was, uh, when I was a PhD student, he was uh, the previous head of the institute that I was in. And he, he always struck me as being somebody who was interesting because he always thought left field uh, mm. and he wasn't, um, he wasn't afraid to consider a wacky idea. Um, and, you know, some of them turned out to be completely wacky and others turned out to be quite successful. Mm. So, so, yeah, those three, I guess. Hey, uh, I'm just sort of thinking to myself here. Astrophysics is a huge passion of myself and Bill's. It'd be so cool if we could get, like, you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brian Cox, like Richard Dawkins, and all just had this huge orgy. Nah, all, all, all just have this massive... Uh, Circle jerk. Yeah. All just have this huge uh, um, Skype. It'd be, it'd be amazing. It'd be so cool. Sorry. <laughs> We've lost it a little bit you here. Right. Hey, uh, 
Last thing. Did Richard Dawkins an astrophysicist or an atheist? Is, Richard Dawkins is not an astrophysicist. No. He's a biologist. He's a biologist. He's a biologist. That's, right. That's right. He's a biologist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got that good out of hand. Brian Cox isn't an astrophysicist either. He's a particle physicist. He's but a, we won't mention that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So just, thanks for bringing me up on that. <laughs> hey, uh, last one, uh, G-Man. If there's one way that people can um, find you on social media or anything you you want to plug, now's the time to do it. Do you want to... Um, Mention some uh, names, mention some, some things. Okay, so I'm on uh, Twitter. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at cosmic underscore horizons. And cool. also uh, we have a Twitter account for our book, A Fortunate Universe, uh, where, where we'll be answering any astrophysical questions that people have. And we also have a Facebook page, but I don't know how Facebook works. <laughs> so if, if you if you search Facebook for A Fortunate Universe, you'll find our page. Cool. And, and, and of course, I'd love to recommend people go out and buy my book when it becomes available. Is it on pre-order? Is it uh, pre-order at the moment or when will it be it's available? It's on pre-order on Amazon. So Awesome. I'll a, fortunate, a Fortunate Universe. A Fortunate Universe. All right. Awesome. Well... Thank you so much for uh, for a round two. I think we covered off on a lot of really good stuff there, and mm, um, loved it. Absolutely and, loved it. And uh, I think uh, we might try and come up with some more questions and hit them, uh, hit you again when we're in Sydney in uh, in twelve months' time or something. G man, definitely. Absolutely, sounds good. Hey, right. also, I'm going to speak to you personally, Grant, because I'm I'm soon. I'm going to buy a telescope really soon. I want to uh, um, I want to know what the best ones out there. So we'll uh, we'll get that organised. Uh, yes, I, I, I can point you in the right uh, right direction for that. But often, a really good pair of binoculars will outdo uh, a basic telescope. Really? So, yeah. Also really good for other, other things yeah, as well. Yeah, just spying <laughs> on the, the neighbours. And- <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Cool. All righty. Thanks, G-Man. Absolute okay. pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. See Thanks, you guys. brother. Bye. Bye. Alrighty, guys, that was the final part of Durant Lewis. We are we, towards the end of the show. We were so bloody excited there. We're definitely going to get him back on when we um, hang out with him up in Sydney. Do they and, think they uh, like my cir- he like my circle jerk joke? <laughs> I don't actually really know what he. I don't, I don't, that got so sexual towards the end. Of I, I I don't know what a, a circle jerk is. That, that didn't terrible, sound well at all, did it? Terrible accent. Ah oh, well, yeah. No, uh, he, he's a champion. So. We're going to hang out with him. Hey, guys, if you if you want more of that sort of content, please just let us know. Email uh, myself or Bill. You can find our stuff through Adventure Travel, which is a segue to what I want to say. Now, if you heard something through the show that you thought was pretty effing rad, you can jump onto our show notes at www.adventuretravel.com. Click the podcast link. Uh, go to the podcast that we're talking about, and um, it's got all the stuff there, okay? And while you're on there, you can join our mailing list. Bill, do you want to talk about the mailing list? Uh, yeah, so the mailing list can be found on the website, guys. If you're on our mailing list, you'll get all of our blogs from our bloggers, all of our podcast updates, all of our trip promotions and updates, everything and anything going on with Adventure Fit Travel. And uh, it's all there. So make sure you're on that cool, cool. and you will never miss a thing. Guys, don't forget to jump on audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF. Radio. That's R-A-T-I-O. Uh, you, you know, you know, we love it, guys. We know you love it. Everyone get around it. <laughs> Alrighty, until next time, team. Goodbye. Peace. Goodbye.